Welcome everybody. We are grateful to have you with us today. Visitors, we are grateful to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. It's, it's good to see all of you. Looks like summer break is kind of over and the wanderers are returning and, then, and we like that. And um, members, we are glad that you are back as well. Visitors, we want you to know we're going to have a time for fellowship after this uh, worship time. If you didn't hear that earlier, uh, we'll have some coffee, we'll have some carbohydrate-laced snacks uh, in the fellowship hall, so please join us after that, and then we'll have Bible classes about 15 minutes after we let out of this worship service. Right. Uh, today... We're going to start a new series about the Gospel of Matthew. And as I start this series, I want to say this. Welcome to the house of God. Here we are today, sitting in the house of Jesus Christ, the house of God. Jeremy led our thoughts just a moment ago in a wonderful way to remind us that when we sit at this table, this Lord's Supper table, we've pulled our chairs up to the table of Jesus Christ. And we are sharing table fellowship with the Lord of the universe. And he has called you and he has called me to be here with him today so we can share time with him. He has made you and me into a family, into a holy people. So today we can gather strength from one another. We can lift up our voices to praise him and God our Father. And we can go out and carry out his will in this world. Welcome to the house of God. The story of the book of Matthew is the story of how the world changed and, and how the kingdom of God was made real in the life and the teachings and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he established. And so today, rather than focusing on one particular passage, which is what Jeremy and I usually do, I just want us to look at the whole book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is one of the longer books in the New Testament, but honestly, you could read it in about 35 or 40 minutes. You could do that every week. And that wouldn't be bad practice for you during the time that we're doing this sermon series. It tells this powerful story of Jesus Christ predicted, hoped for, longed for throughout the centuries of the Old Testament. And in that long period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of what we call the New Testament, the desiring of the Messiah, the Christ to come, here he is, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the passage that we had read today uh, for our scripture reading. So 
all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the departure to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the departure, deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken uh, by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here we are in the presence of God, hearing the story of the coming of God in the flesh, Emmanuel, born of a virgin. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born into the royal line of David, we are told, comes into the world to establish the kingdom of God. That's how the Gospel of Matthew sets out his story. Jesus comes as king. The king that the people of God had longed for. The king that the people of God had prayed for. If only we could get David back. If only somehow all of those promises that had been made in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the anointed one from the line of David, if only that could finally come true. All of our problems with the Romans, all of our problems with our own sins and, and the difficulties that our sins have thrown our nation into and thrown us individually into, all of that could be dealt with. And here, the angel tells a descendant of David, Joseph, he says, the woman that you're about to marry, she is pregnant, but she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the child that she's going to give birth to, even though she's a virgin, the child that she's going to give birth to is that child that will save God's people from their sins. This is to fulfill what Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will be with child, she'll give birth to a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It's all starting to happen. That's how the Gospel of Matthew opens. Everything that the Israelites have been hoping for, and some had maybe given up hope, now it's starting to take place. God with us. It's starting to take place. What's that going to look like? As you turn the pages of the Gospel of Matthew, you wonder, what, what will that mean? God coming in the flesh, being born as a little baby, living a life here on earth. What will that look like? We have stories about God sort of taking on human form. Greeks had stories about that. Romans had stories. The Egyptians had stories about that. Farther east, there are stories from the Indian subcontinent about that. What's it look like when gods take on human flesh? We can imagine uh, great warrior kings. We can imagine 
people with superpowers flying over the battlefield, casting lightning bolts. We, I mean, that's the kind of stories that we get from human mythologies. What will this be like? You can hardly wait to turn the page, can't you? you just, I, what's this going to be when God is here in the flesh with us? Born of a virgin, born from the line of David, ready to bring the kingdom of God into the world. We're going to study these passages more in depth later, but, but look what starts to take place. Jesus is recognized by God in his baptism, and he begins to preach the gospel. Matthew 4, verse 15 through 17. In the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's, that's the ancient names for the land that is now called Galilee, the territory of Galilee, um, in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For the, those dwelling in the region of shadow and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A little bit later, we read this. Jesus entered Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. What does it look like when God takes on human flesh? the real God. It's not lightning bolts. It's not turning people into newts. It's this. Good news and healing. Your, your, your sins being dealt with. All of the forces of evil losing battle after battle after battle as Jesus Christ walks gently through the world. That's the picture we're getting. It is a strange picture. It, it kind of turns our expectations on their head. I think it turned the expectations of the Jews themselves on their head. I think what they hope for when the Messiah comes, when God himself comes in the Messiah to, to become king, I, I think what they hoped for was some lightning bolts, some smiting of the Romans and the other nations that oppressed them. And here's Jesus healing, casting out demons, and preaching over and over again the message, the kingdom is here. That's what it's like when God is with us. As the story continues, Jesus calls around himself disciples and, and the men that he will call his apostles, his sent out ones, and he asks him this question. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, I'm sorry, I should have filled in the blanks for you on that previous one. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God in his words and in his actions. Now I'll move on. Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter explained, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Peter said a mouthful. Jesus says as much. He says, you didn't, you didn't make that up. God spoke that to you, Peter. God has made that clear to you. I am both of those things, the Christ and the Son of the living God. The Christ means anointed in Greek. Same word as the Hebrew word Messiah in Hebrew. It means the one that God has chosen to be king or prophet or priest. In this case, it's all of those. The anointed one. You are God's anointed one. The one from David. The one that we've been hoping for. You're finally here. Peter says, and he's speaking for all of the apostles, we believe that's you. You are that Christ and you're the son of God. The one who will stand as king for us and solve our problems. Jesus is king. He came to be king. When you say Jesus Christ, I've mentioned this many times, when you say Jesus Christ, you are not saying Jesus' last name. When you call him Christ, you are giving him his title. Jesus King. King Jesus. He is your king. He is my king. He's actually the king of everyone in the world. Part of the problem is some of the world doesn't recognize Jesus as king. But Jesus is set up to be king of everything in heaven and on earth and whatever's under the earth. Whatever you got in the universe, Jesus came to be king of all of that. That's Jesus. What's it like to be that king? Again, the world has expectations for what kings are. About 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, Nebuchadnezzar was a tremendously powerful conqueror. He swept away the Assyrians. And uh, he swept in and could have destroyed the Israelites possibly many times. He finally does destroy, by the will of God, the city of Jerusalem and takes the Israelites captive to Babylon. He defeats the Egyptians. He defeats the Assyrians. He establishes the most powerful empire that the world had seen, at least the Middle East had seen up to that time. An incredible power. That's what the people thought of as kings. His kingdom, the kingdom that he establishes, lasts at its peak about 90 years total. He loses his kingdom to Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus's kingdom lasts a little longer and it's actually a good bit bigger. It pushes on into the territory of India. It pushes farther down into Egypt. It pushes farther west towards Europe, all the way to the shores of the Aegean and makes moves to try, eventually try to take over what we call Greece. It's an enormous kingdom and it lasts for three centuries. That's a king. The Persians, the god kings, Cyrus and Xerxes and Artaxerxes, 
That's what kings look like. They crush their enemies. They grind them under their heel. If you dare to oppose those kings, you die. The power of Cy that Cyrus established is destroyed by somebody from Macedon Macedonia. A man by the name of Alexander. We call him now Alexander the Great. What makes him great? Because he killed so many people. Those are the kind of people we call great usually in our history. He rolled up the Persian defenses in what we would call Turkey today. He confronted a massive Turkish army, I mean Persian army, and defeated it. He was outnumbered three to one in the Battle of Isis. He defeated the Persians there. Two years later at the Battle of Gagamela, he may have been outnumbered. Some people say as much as five to one. He defeats that one as well, causes the Persian king to run. His own people slaughter the Persian king. Alexander the Great assumes the title of the Persian god king for himself. He just adds that to his title. He's king. He takes on the royal titles of the ancient Egyptian monarchy. He takes on the royal titles of Persia. He's already got the royal titles of Greece and Macedonia. He has the largest land empire that the world has ever seen. You stand against Alexander the Great and you die. His empire, built on blood, lasts as long as Alexander lasts. It breaks up within 20 years of his death. Breaks into four different parts, four different warring factions. Those civil wars go on for a long time. The century before Jesus came into the world, Julius Caesar fought with Pompey, another great Roman general. They jockeyed for power politically. They manipulated the Roman Senate. Finally, Caesar is victorious over Pompey. Drives him out of Italy, but he himself is assassinated. His heir, Augustus, abolishes the rest of Pompey's power, consolidates power and becomes the son of God, some of the coins proclaim, Augustus, the first of the Roman emperors. Truly was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. Carthage had been defeated centuries before. There was no power that could stand in the way of Rome. If you stood up against Rome, you got hung on a cross and died. Rome is built by shedding the blood of its enemies. That's what a king is like. And so here, in this little shadow of a mountain, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you're the king. That's who you are. You're God's king. The son of the living God, that's who you are. You're better than Augustus. You're better than Alexander. You're better than Nebuchadnezzar. You're better than Cyrus. Name a king, you're better. That's you. Jesus almost immediately turns to his disciples after they've recognized him as a king. And he says this, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus knows about Nebuchadnezzar. He knows about Cyrus. He knows about Alexander. He knows about Caesar. Jesus has seen it all. He's seen many other conquerors besides that. He knows. And he says, here's the kind of king I'm going to be. You've proclaimed me a king and you're right. But here's the kind of king I'm going to be. When I get to my capital city where my throne shall be, they're going to kill me. Peter knows what a king is supposed to look like, and Peter can't stand what Jesus has just said. Peter speaks up now, speaking the opposite of God's words. He speaks the words of Satan. No! That's never going to happen. God's king is the greatest of all kings. The enemies of the king don't kill the king. The enemies of the king get killed by the king. And Jesus says, you are standing in the, you're a hindrance to me. You're standing in the way of what I'm here to do. I will die. I'm going to tell you something else, Peter, and all of my followers. You come follow me right now. You pick up your Roman cross. You're going to get put on a cross too. You're going to get killed too. What it means to be God's king is not to kill your enemies, but to sacrifice for them in love so that the kingdom can be based on the love of God. A poet back in the 19th century, a guy by the name of Shelley, not, not a great human being, but he wrote some good poems. He has a poem called Ozymandias. And it's actually written about another great conqueror, Ramses II, and, and actual ruins that that remain of Ramses II. And the great striking line is, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. That's a king at the height of his power that can say that. I've conquered my enemies to the west. I've conquered my enemies to the east. I've conquered them north. I've conquered them south. I've built these great works, these great walls, these great armies. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. That's a king, the kind of king the world seems to want over and over again. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But the tone of the poem is not triumphant. Because what we're invited to look at is the shattered statue. And bare sands all around it. 
and the empire that once existed for Ramses II, Ozymandias, is nothing but dirt. And so those proud words, look on my works, ye mighty in despair, take on the real meaning. If you live by the sword, this is what awaits for you. You will die by the sword. Every king that builds by killing his enemies will in turn die. Every kingdom that's built on blood will be destroyed in blood. That's true for every kingdom that's ever existed. Americans, I'm sad to say that's true for our kingdom. That's always going to be true for earthly kingdoms. And Jesus says, I am king. That is the very voice of God that spoke to you, Peter, when you said, I'm king. But this is the kind of king I am. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king of God. But that does not mean killing God's enemies. It means sacrificing in love for them. Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm here to give my life as a sacrifice. And that's what I call on you to do as well. What Jesus predicts over and over again from this point forward in the Gospel of Matthew does come true. He, he finally does enter into the city of Jerusalem. And instead of welcoming him as the rightful king, he is subjected to trial beating, humiliation, and crucifixion by the Romans. After they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. They sat down to keep watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They, didn't, they meant it as mockery. They meant it uh, as a slander. Ironically, they are proclaiming the exact truth. This is who they have just killed. And of course, death cannot hold him. He rises from the dead. He appears to uh, and invites the women to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And at Galilee, we get this great commission. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where's the empire of Alexander today? Where's the empire of Nebuchadnezzar today? Where's the empire of Caesar or Ramses or Cyrus the Persian? Welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to the house of God. God with us. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, if you need to have your sins washed away in baptism, if you need prayers or help, 
Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?